Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream. And you Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Wednesday, April 29th, 2009. This is episode 190, I think, anyway. We shall see. All right, um, let's knock out some real quick house cleaning right away, because i got a lot of stuff to cover in today's show, and I want to get it all in before I end up at the office and have to shut the uh, recorder down. Number one, um, make sure that if there's any way possible, you can come on down to Goldthwait, Texas, and hang out with us at the Region 5 Campout Bugout Get-Together over Memorial Day weekend. You're Goldthwait, Texas. You come on down and hang out with us. There'll be a link in today's show notes for uh, more information about that. Swine flu or not, unless people are dropping over dead left and right, we are going to all be there hanging out, eating barbecue, and having fun. Um, also, Dirt Time 09, end of August in San Bernardino, California. Week-long event. 14 survival experts giving various lectures and workshops. I will be among them. Link in today's show notes. If you think you get more than 25 cents in value per episode, consider supporting the survivalpodcast.com by joining the Member Support Brigade at either $5 a week or $50 a year. Your contribution helps keep the show going and you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Also, please consider visiting the websites of our sponsors. You'll see those guys on the right-hand margin of our site. Uh, If you are up for learning more about how you would handle yourself in a real-world gunfight, consider visiting our sponsor of the day, Tactical Response Gear, James Jaeger. Check out the options that there are there to go and take the fighting pistol course, the fighting rifle course, and other things like that. Tactical Response Gear is actually the equipment side of his business, but uh, you'll find DVDs where you can actually see what it's like to go one of those courses and links off to uh, the site that offers the courses as well. And consider giving all of our sponsors business because they help make doing the show possible. Okay, uh, what do you call it, uh, house cleaning done. Let's move on to today's topics. I'm going to give you today three topics, two little ones, one big one. Topic one, an update on the flu and where I think it's going and where I think we really need to grab hold of the hysteria quick. I'm going to talk very, very briefly about Arlen Specter and tell you how I see this like the WWF World Wrestling Federation. Yes, that doesn't exist anymore. It's back when I was a kid. And then I'm going to go into today's real topic, which is about food shortages and uh, the potential for them coming in the future. This is a pretty deep topic once we get into it, and it's something I want to make people aware of. And it's it's important that we understand about that topic. It's not going to happen tomorrow. This is, this is something that we're being set up for long term if we don't figure out what to do about it. And I don't expect the governments of the world who are really in control of it is to figure out what to do about it. So I say we do about it for ourselves. That's what survivalism is all really all about. But let's start out with the flu. 
So what's going on with the flu? Well, last night I was watching my local news channel 4 or 8 or whatever the hell it was. I don't even know because we were flipping through channels. Because there was absolutely crap on TV last night, even on Discovery and, and all of that. Until uh, uh, there's a show called Ultimate Warrior or Warriors or something like that. That's like they see they like last night they saw a pirate and a uh, and a knight fighting, and that show's pretty cool. So until that came on, there was crap on last night. Anyway. Um, the guy comes on and he says, an update from the CDC. They say that the flu will turn deadly in the United States. More tonight at 9. And they went away. Now look, you know what I wanted to do? Because I didn't know what exactly was going on, but I knew it was bullshit. I wanted to get in my car at about 8 o'clock at night and drive my ass down I-20 all the way to downtown Dallas where that studio is and go grab the guy that made that announcement, drag him in the street, and kick his ass. That's how angry I was about it. So I immediately went to the CDC website. I went to pandemicflu.gov, and I tried to figure out what the hell this jackass was talking about. When we watched bits of the news later on, and I couldn't watch the whole thing because I was still fuming mad about the irresponsibility of making such a stupid-ass announcement, um, I never really heard what the hell that was supposed to mean. This morning, I think I've got it figured out. A 23- or 21-month-old young child under two years of age died in Houston um, this morning or last night, and that must be what they're talking about. In other words, it's going to turn deadly because one person's going to die. That was my initial instinct. Let's look at this thing for what it really is, though. This kid's from Mexico. He was a Mexican citizen. I don't know if he was here legally or illegally yet. Being from Texas and knowing how things work around here, my sneaking suspicion is illegally. Okay? But he came to Brownsville already ill from Mexico. He was transferred to Houston where they tried to take care of him and he died. So what we have is a Mexican citizen that contracted a flu in Mexico coming to the United States and dying. A young child less equipped to deal with the illness and probably very deep into the illness before he got any type of medical treatment. And we have an ass clown on our local news saying, you know what? Uh, the CDC says flu is going to turn deadly in the United States. I'm telling you, you guys need to start. And, and I, I've got my wife going through our DVR trying to figure out what the heck if we taped that to see. Because I don't remember what news outlet it was. But if I figure it out, I'm going to call them up. And I'm going to tell them that this ass clown should be fired. Whoever wrote that piece should be fired. And we need to start reining the media back in when they start talking nonsense like this. Because one kid coming in from Mexico is not the flu turning deadly in the United States. More details than I Nine. doesn't warrant that. And I know that the media does crap like that to promote the news and all, and we, we laugh at it from time to time, but this is no place for it. Um, on a less happy note, I guess, four children in uh, Cleburne School District, I think, are now suspected to have swine flu. Uh, that's ground zero for my wife and her medical practice where she works. So they expect to see about a bazillion people trying to get in today to be seen with no symptoms. And that's something else I want to point out to those of you with children. Um, 
um, don't take your kids to the doctor to see if they're okay if they don't have any symptoms. And and there's people starting to do that, and it's not. It's like taking your car to the mechanic and saying, "Tell me what's wrong with it." When there's nothing wrong with it, he doesn't even know where to start. So they're starting to see that they are turning those people away. We will not see you if you don't have any symptoms. And then they're already starting to have people go, "Well, you know, he does gotta have a runny nose." Like they start making symptoms up as soon as they're told no. We're learning something here, and I'm going to come back to that in just a second, because I'm going to go on to something else now that's going on. All the news was talking last night about how all the local stores that sell surgical masks are out of surgical masks now, and they're back-ordered, and they're out of Tamiflu, and they're back-ordered, and a dose of Tamiflu is over $100, and they're wiped out. What you're seeing here with these reactions by the public is how unprepared and uninformed that they are. Is having a flu, ma- you know, a, a surgical mask maybe a decent idea? Probably wouldn't hurt anything. Can't say we don't have any, but do you need to really be like, like freaking out by a flu mask right now? Probably not. There's a limited effect of a mask, right? A very limited effect of a mask. And it may help. That's what me- the medical professionals tell us. It may help reduce the inhalation of the virus. But you can't just run around like a clown with a mask on. And at the same time that this is going on here in the United States, and they're like, look how real this is. Uh, let's see how we can get our ratings up at 9 o'clock tonight. What they're saying about Mexico is there's disturbing images in Mexico of people with masks on. What's disturbing to me is this. I saw a young boy in Mexico on the news, had his mask on, holding a bottle of soda. He lifted his mask, drank the soda, brought it down and put the mask back on. My son called it an epic failure. And all I'm saying here is look at what's going on now and understand that if we ever have a real shit at the fan, and I don't think this is one, I don't think this particular flu strain is going to kill us all. I think it's a flu like any other flu. Um... This is what you're going to get. People panicking and then running out and purchasing stuff because they think that's going to fix everything for them. Now, if these people had any brains, what they would be doing right now is is laying up 30 to 60 days worth of food and water so that if there's a quarantine, they can stay home and avoid exposure and contamination. But no, they're going to run out and buy surgical masks and Tamiflu. I have some thoughts on Tamiflu. Beyond what I said yesterday, I said it's been proven effective against this strain of flu. Uh, I'm not going to do that today because I'm going to run out of time if I do. Uh, But I am not a I'm not, you know, uh, drink the Kool-Aid, Tamiflu is the answer, and I'm not Tamiflu is something evil designed to kill us all either. I'll give you my thoughts on that tomorrow. Let me move on to Arlen Specter. I got a lot of emails about this. The guy's a traitor. Well, you know what? We already knew he was a traitor. He was a traitor when he voted for the spendulous, porculous, crap-ass bill um, that Obama rammed through without anybody having a chance to read it before they voted on it, along with uh, Olympia Snow and whatever the other jackass-ass clown was that did that. Um, and I don't remember her name right now either, but whatever. We're going to get rid of all three of them. So he switches over to the Democrats after 29 years of being a Republican. Let me tell you something about Mr. Specter that you may not know. Many, many years ago, we had a young president named JFK assassinated. There's a lot of conspiracy theory around that. I don't believe most of the conspiracy theory, but I don't believe just the, the straight textbook answer either. There's something else there that we don't know, and we probably never will. But one of the things that came out of it was the magic bullet theory. 
a magic bullet. It was proposed and sold to our government and sold to the population by a young attorney by the name of Arlen Specter. That's where this guy's roots are. He's now near 80 years of age. He's been in the, in the uh, Senate for 29 years. 29 years he served as a Republican, and now he's switching over to the Democrats. This is what this reminds me of. Um, for those of you that think I just hate on Alex Jones all the time, I'll surprise you here. I watched the Obama deception. I thought it was a great film. Uh, I thought it was 80% dead on and 20% eh, out there foil haddish, you know, but 80% or more dead on. And one of the quotes in there is Jesse Ventura, who was a wrestler in the 80s, saying, you know, Paul, I was the governor, and I'll tell you, politics is like the wrestling world. Everybody's going to kick each other's ass on camera, and behind the scenes, we're all friends. Well, this just extends that analogy. I remember way back in the 80s, I was in like 7th or 8th grade, and the biggest wrestling star of the time was Hulk Hogan in the WWF. And his arch nemesis, his enemy, was Randy Macho Man Savage. And because even back then I had a life, I don't remember exactly what happened, but something happened in a match. And Macho Man ended up coming to Hogan's aid, even though he was supposed to be against him. And then they turned and they looked at each other, and Macho Man sticks his hand out, and Hogan looks at the crowd, everybody cheers, and then they clasp hands. And just like that, he's gone from bad guy to good guy. He switched sides. Of course, it's all theatrics. It's nonsensical. But if you're an eighth grader, it's kind of entertaining. Um, but it's not entertaining when it's the people that are supposed to be running our government. And that's what you saw out of Spectre. All I can say is, you know what? He is what he is. We've been calling him a rhino for a long time. Now he's not a rhino anymore. Now he's a Democrat, which is what he's always been. He's going to vote the same as he always did. And never forget it's just an act. That said, we still need to punish this asshole. And we need to get him out of office. Even if the guy that replaces him is not any better. This guy needs to go. Anybody that's been in the Senate for 30 freaking years needs to go. This, that is not what the, our government was designed to be. We need to turn everybody over, but this guy in particular, this guy needs to be made an example out of when the election comes around. So that has eaten up a lot of the show, folks. Uh, about 15 minutes. I'm sorry, but i got to get all this stuff in. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. But let's talk about the coming food shortage. I found an article, and I don't remember the publication now. It's going to shock you how much I remember the um, the article itself, and I can't remember who originally published it, but it was on Internet Free or something like that, freeinternet.com or something, but it was actually from like World News, nah, I can't think of what it is, but it's like a major magazine, and it's a very well-written piece, and except for the fact that this person is a Kool-Aid drinking believer in global warming, it's very, very well done, and even the issues that the person brings up about climate change make an awful lot of sense. We just don't necessarily agree on what's causing the climate change. But the article opens, and I'll put a link to the article because I do have that saved and available. The article opens with with kind of a startling fact. In six of our nine last years, global grain production has failed to meet demand. In other words, people went hungry in six of the last nine years that otherwise would not have if more grain had been produced. These are not just poor people that couldn't afford food. This is when all the food got sent to wherever it was going to go, and you did whatever you could to get your hands on food. There were people that there just wasn't enough grain there for. Now, the thing about grain is grain is the staff of life in our world. 
world today. I think it's overused. I think it's the cause of a lot of modern diseases that didn't show up until after the dawn of agriculture. I think people that live heavily on grain without any meat and other vegetables are high, highly prone to type 2 diabetes. But I'll tell you the one thing it does do, it keeps people alive. They might die of uh, modern illnesses in their, in their elderly years, but they get to their elderly years and they survive. And that's why I think the governments of the world have always put an emphasis, and subsidies are not new. They go back a long time for farmers to use their land to grow whatever grain grows best in their area. Even the Indians, the Native Americans in the, in, you know, here grew heavy amounts of grain in the form of mostly amaranth and corn because it's what sustains the mass amounts of the population in an agri- agriculture-driven society, which even here with all this technology, our food is all driven by agriculture. Even our meat is driven by agriculture because we feed the cattle the grain and then we eat the cow. All right, So we've had a shortfall already globally six of the last nine years. And we have to start looking at the trends. Whenever I look at a problem, I say, well, let's look at the marketplace. Look at where the money's being exchanged. Let's see what's going on there because those guys are experts at looking at the future and determining you know, what to do now to solidify their business models uh, going forward. And you learn a lot when you look at that. One of the things that started to happen recently is certain nations have started to ban exports. This happened a long time ago, back in like 72, I think it was, the Soviet Union banned exports of wheat because they were having massive crop shortfalls due to a combination of drought in one area and too much rain in another, something we've been through here in the United States. And that put a short-term peak, and then it went away. And that's kind of how it's been in the past. The nations would maybe ban exports at a time when there was a peak problem, but as soon as the problem was rectified, it would go away. And they would do it in a short-term model. They would they would say, okay, we're banning our exports and we're increasing our imports uh, with no real program or plan. We're just doing that. What's starting to happen now, though, is that nations are starting to lock in long-term contracts, three years or more, with other nations to buy the bulk of their grain. And other nations are starting to put bans again on their grain. We saw this happen with rice and uh, several uh, mid, uh, Far Eastern nations banning the exportation of rice about a year ago. We saw rice go up really high. We saw Costco putting limits on how much rice you could buy. Sam's Club did the same thing on the, you know, the large 50-pound sacks of rice, things like that. People started to hoard right away. We're, we're learning something when we look at people reacting to these small problems. A swine flu, a mild flu that doesn't kill any more people than any other flu. And everybody starts to freak out, buy masks, surgical booties, and whatever other nonsense they could sell you on the Internet. And, you know, rice goes up a little bit and people go out and buy ten sacks of it. They probably don't use one sack a year. And they weren't doing it to prep. They were doing it out of a reaction. We're starting to see that reaction. We need to pay attention to it. The other thing that I'm seeing out there is... uh Something I've been talking about since last year, right around the time I launched this show, is how much of our grain crop is now going to biofuels. I learned something in this article that I didn't know, though, how much that really is. I thought it was a lot, maybe 10% wouldn't have surprised me. But this year, one quarter, 25% of grain produced in the United States will go to biofuels. Let me say it again, a quarter of the grain produced in the United States this year 
will go to biofuels. Now, remember what I talked about earlier this year. The United States is now a net importer of food. We can't feed ourselves. And yet we're turning our food into fuel. We really have to think about what we're doing there and the damage we're doing to our land by this type of agriculture. More about that in a bit. But how much are we doing this with? Well, let me put it to you this way. The the amount of fuel that we make or the amount of grain that we use to make 25 gallons of ethanol, enough to fill one big SUV, could feed a person for a year. So every time we fill a tank with ethanol, or we, you know, make up one tank because we don't use pure ethanol because it destroys our vehicles. I don't want to tell us that, but it does. Uh, but when we, we, you know, we offset one tank of fuel with ethanol, we've not fed a human being for a year. That's what's going on there. We'll talk a little bit more about biofuels in a bit here. Um, the important thing to understand, though, is, I mean, what we're really talking about there is if we took that quarter of the grain crop from the United States, that's enough to feed like 125 million people in the United States, something like that. You can check my my number there with the article, but I think that was the number. And believe it or not, because we have a much different diet than they do in India, we could feed a half a billion people for a year in India with the grain that we're converting to ethanol. And you just look at it and go, there's got to be you know, overall problems with the food shortages uh, long term. I'm just getting started, though. There was another really great point about uh, what's going on out there that I had really never thought of before in this article. And that's what's happened to the, to the fresh water supply in the United States. Now, I think a lot of the crap that we hear about droughts, like they're still telling us we're in a drought here in Dallas, and my backyard is a swamp right now from how much rain that we've had. It's going to rain every day for the next 10 days. It's going to rain so much and be so overcast. I'm concerned for my garden not getting enough sun and being too wet for the next two weeks. But, yeah, we're still in a drought. But when we look at agricultural use of fresh water, not residential use, not you watering your your garden, whatever. When we look at real agricultural use, 70% of the water used in the world goes to irrigation of crops. 70%. It makes the amount you use to take a bath with at night seem kind of pale in comparison. And what we're seeing across the world are falling water tables. And it's simply because in the aquifers that we're pumping the water out of, we are now pumping the water out faster then the water can be replaced. But at least in the the shallow aquifers that we generally use for irrigation of our crops, that gets replaced. If we just stopped for a year, they'll fill back up pretty much. Uh, That's how they work. They're part of the the recirculating cycle of water. The problem is that we have what are called fossil aquifers, very deep aquifers. Now, there's a tremendous amount of water down there. Absolutely tremendous amount of water. Giant underground freshwater seas. The problem is they don't refill. Now that's actually bullshit as far as I'm concerned. My belief is they do refill. They just refill at a very, very, very slow rate. 
And it's because I have a little bit of knowledge of geology that I say that. And what I mean by that is the water has to get down there from somewhere. And there are, there's like, for instance, where I live north of Hot Springs, Arkansas, people down in the, uh, in the, in the city go to this little fountain and get all this hot water out of it, this pressurized hot water that comes out the bottom. That water starts literally, and I mean absolutely literally starts in my backyard and goes down into the shallow aquifers and continues down to percolate down into the deep water aquifers, gets pressurized by the geology of the area and comes out miles away right in the middle of Hot Springs, Arkansas. And my my place up there is on the rim of an ancient volcano. Those aquifers are beginning to fall at an alarming rate. And even though the whole thing they'll never fill back up, I don't agree with, they won't fill back up for generations and generations and generations. In fact, um, there's a good chance there will be no humans left by the time those things fill back up. We're talking 50,000 years or more. So for all intents and purposes, people are right, but I hate leaving a detail out like that. Two of the big ones that are falling is the Ogala, I think is how you say it, aquifer, which is right here in the United States, under the Midwestern United States. We're pumping it like crazy. We're depleting the water supply like crazy out of it. And the Saudi um, aquifer, which is actually not in Saudi Arabia, but under northern China. That's being depleted even faster because they're trying to feed a billion people. We really have to look at what we're, we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is this is not people in some kind of conspiracy trying to kill all the people on the planet and reduce the population and New World Order nutjob stuff. What's going on here is the farmers are simply trying to produce more crops. And there's more people to feed, so you have to grow more food. So they're pumping the hell out of the shallow aquifers, and when they run dry, they have no place but to go to the deep ones. That's, that's exactly what we're dealing with here. Um, another trend that has to do with this water decline. And in China it's so bad that they're actually not able to get as much water to the crops now. Because they're having to work so much harder to get the water out. So it's not that it's gone. It's like I said, there's between easy oil and no oil. We're not talking no water. We're talking the end of easy water in some of these areas in China. So wheat has declined by 8% uh, since its 1997 peak in China. So the Chinese are seeing their, their, their production decline. Folks, they have a billion people to feed. 1.6 billion, 1.3 billion or something like that. And they're seeing the overall production of their ability to feed those people go down. And this leads to the next thing that's really making things worse here is what's happening to our soil around the world. If you, the one of the big reasons I want you to, to to grow something for yourself in your backyard is so that you'll learn how difficult it is to actually grow food. On some levels it's easy, and on some levels it's very difficult, and things go wrong. But the one thing that will save your butt over and over again is good soil. And when you grow a small garden, even up to like a quarter acre with raised beds or you know tilled ground or whatever, and you're constantly adding compost, it's actually relatively easy to take good care of your soil and make your soil better every year. The problem is we can't yell at the farmers of the world and say, look, you're killing the soil, you jerks, you know, and, and say you got to do it with organic and do this and add compost and all because when you're trying to grow food on a 1,000 acres, it doesn't scale up that way. Unless we have thousands and thousands and, dare I say, millions of people go back to an agrarian lifestyle and start growing, everybody growing their own food again, 
It can't be done if you want to feed the world population. It has to be done on a massive scale. And you cannot do intensive growing on a massive scale. It doesn't work that way. So what happens is these farmers go out, and they plow these fields over and over and over again, and they just keep wreaking as much production out of them as they can. And being a farmer is a hard lifestyle, so it's not easy to let land go vacant for a while. It's not easy to grow a cover crop that you don't harvest, that you leave there for a half a season or a full season and plow into the ground. Now, a lot of farmers do it, but they do it because they have no choice. And every time something comes along and promises them the ability to not let that field go idle for the winter, to not have it sit there with a bunch of hairy vetch in it that gets plowed into the ground, they try to do it, and they're only trying to economically survive. That's, that's the reality of what's going on there. But it's absolutely eroding the hell out of our soil. Right now, ex- erosion exceeds replacement on about a third of the world's soil, which means that one-third of our croplands throughout the entire world are in a decline that if it doesn't end, will eventually become infertile. Because that's what soil erosion does. Eventually, you end up with something that won't grow anything anymore. That's happening right now at varying rates. It's not overnight. It's not we're all going to die tomorrow. But a third of the world's croplands right now are eroding to a point of non-production at some point. The land is becoming sterile. Um, Typically, topsoil is six inches deep or less. That's six inches of earth that feed the world. Six inches. Think about one bulldozer putting one building foundation in and how much they're actually moving. This is what we're dealing with here. Um, give you an example of a country where the soil is the problem. Haiti. Fort, you know, Haiti is one of the poorest, most impoverished nations in the world right now. They rely on the United States and other modern nations throughout the world for, for support, to stay alive. It's a very, very tough place to live. Crime is rampant and people starve. Forty years ago, Haiti was one of the more self-sufficient nations in the world. Their fertile, rich island topsoil grew so much food for them, they were able to feed themselves. But what's happened is a combination of deforestation and increased population and modern agricultural techniques that were supposed to make things better, eroding the soil to where they can only produce half of what they did 40 years ago. Now, let me, let me say that again. I want you to get this through your head. This is important. Isolated little nation, island nation in the Caribbean, never freezes, never freezes in Haiti. Always decent weather, other than the occasional uh, hurricane, which you're always going to have to deal with. Their ability to produce food has declined by 50% over 40 years, while we're supposedly making agriculture better and more efficient and more productive. The other issue that we have with our soil and our crops in general is climate change. And you know how I feel about global warming. I won't go into that today. The show's long enough as it is. But I don't care if the Al Gore believers, the drinking the grape Kool-Aid are right, if the complete deniers drinking the cherry Kool-Aid are right, or the people that are in the middle that say, yeah, we can't really be helping things, but we're probably not really the cause. And, but, there, but there is 
a shift in climate, and sometimes the earth warms and sometimes the earth cools, doesn't matter who's right, when the climate changes, it affects agriculture. And the problem is if you have a, sh- a quick change of a couple degrees in an area, the, 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 the local agriculture d- does not have the time to adapt to it. There's always something you can bring in that will grow a couple degrees warmer or a couple degrees cooler. The problem is not knowing that you need to make the adjustment. And every time a farmer decides on a strainer variety to, to spread out in his field to grow, he's rolling the dice that he's picked the right variety for that year. The other danger there, of course, is the assholes like Monsanto going down and, 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 and just starving out the diversity of these crops to only have a few of each major crop left of varieties that are actually available in large enough numbers where if they all fail or the majority of them fail, we don't have enough seed banks to go back on. Fortunately, some people are doing some things about that. But the, when you talk about the scale that's required, you're talking about it would take years, even on a consorted effort, to get those seed banks up to enough to start reseeding the planet and feeding people again. That's just a, that's not alarmism. That's just a reality. Another big thing that's going on, even if you don't think that genetically modified foods are evil, and I do. I think they are one of the biggest threats to mankind out there. We do not know what they're going to mutate into. Once you put something in the biosphere, it's no longer under your control. You don't know what it's going to do next. You don't know what it's going to spread to next. But even if, you, if you're a believer in GMOs, there's nothing wrong with them. They're, they're, they're safe. They're good. They don't increase yields. They absolutely have failed to increase yields because we already increased yields with the advent of modern fertilizers, which helped destroy our soil, by the way, uh, after World War I and World War II as we started taking all this ammonium nitrate and figuring out what we could actually do with it. And they did what they called the Green Revolution back then. So we're already growing things almost at the peak of their yield capability, and because we're having declines in water availability and soil viability, yields are in decline, and there's no way for these genetically modified foods to increase yields. And it hasn't happened. Despite all the promises, despite all the spin in the press, by ConAgra, by Monsanto, by big agriculture in general, the yields have not increased. They've actually gone down. Um, Again, back on to what's going on with trends around the world, one of the things we really have to look at is the possibility of having failed states. And what are the the governments of the world doing in response to this? Well, what they're doing, again, is they're signing these long-term contracts, um, three, four years. There's, I think, it's one of the, one of the uh, nations, in, maybe Russia or maybe China, one of them signed like a three-year contract with the Philippines to buy the majority of their production uh, over the next three years. So you're starting to see... Again, nations banning the exports of their own production, and you're seeing nations tie up and you know solidify relationships with other nations to make sure that they're going to be able to feed themselves. There's only one place that this can lead to long-term if it's not corrected, and that's war. Again, this is not alarmism. It's just a fundamental fact. If we will go to war for oil, and if other nations will go to war for oil, and they will, then we will definitely, and other nations will definitely, go to war for food. When a nation can't feed itself, it will look to its neighbors and it will steal from its neighbors. They might call it something to try to make it sound legal. They might say it's to defend that nation that's in moral decay or whatever, but it's to get their food. 
It's a macrocosm of the microcosm we prepare for. Because what I've always told you is, that neighbor of yours who's not a prepper, that, that doesn't worry about anything, that seems timid, that has, you know, he's an accountant or a programmer, and he's 115 pounds soaking wet, and he's kind of nerdy, and he's kind of geeky, he'll shoot you to steal your food to feed his family. The day that it means his child will die without it. And it might go to the very day where she's skin and bones and wasting away and going to die. But if it comes down between his and yours, that man will in general, not all, there are people that will lay down and die, but most won't. So why would a nation, especially a nation as powerful as the United States, or Russia, or China, or India. The Indians have nuclear weapons. There's a billion of them. Chinese have nuclear weapons, and there's a billion of them. We have nuclear weapons. It's some of the most advanced warfare technology in the world. There's only 300 million of us, but we have a hell of a lot of technology. And the Soviets, the Russians, they have more people. They have more conventional armament, even with the downscaling, and they have nuclear weapons. And the four of us together make up the lion's share of the Earth's population. And the lion's share of the technology that's available in the world today. And what you'll see, if we don't fix this, eventually, is some conglomeration there fighting the other conglomeration, allied with maybe Western Europe, for the food resources of the world. It will happen. Now, I'm not saying it will happen tomorrow. It might happen in 150 years. I don't know. All I'm telling you is that the, everything that you look at that allows our, our planet to produce food is in decline, and our population is expanding. This is a lot like peak oil. It's not so much will our ability to produce decline. It's how much will the demand on the system increase. And what is this hockey stick effect going to look like in global population over the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? The world population when I was in grade school was like just under 4 billion. I think it's like 6 billion now. I'm really not sure. I I don't want to give out the wrong number. All I know is that it took us an awful long time to get from 2 to 4 billion and a fair amount less time to get from 4 to 6 and that's with the nation of China who has the biggest population doing things to to control the population putting limits on how many children people can have saying every family can only have one child that led to some families drowning baby girls because they wanted a boy to carry on the family name India hasn't exactly started enforcing a law like that yet but they may at some point. One of the disturbing things in this article was the person's solution. The the solution worried me for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons the solution worried me is because obviously we need to get rid of all our carbon fuel and everybody needs to suffer basically was part of the solution. Uh, We need to start doing without right now. And I don't know that we need to do without. I'll give you my solution here in a minute. The other part of the solution, though, was that we need to stabilize the world population at 8 billion. In other words, we need to cap the population of the planet. We will not have more than 8 billion people. And the person I don't think is a malevolent person, I don't even know that they realize what they're saying when they say that. But how do you cap a population? 
there's there's only two ways to cap a population. Control reproduction against the will of the population. Actually, there's three. The voluntary control of reproduction by the population, which, if the planet got enlightened enough, might just happen. People might start going, yeah, you know what, one to two kids, a family, that's enough. That's enough. We've got enough people now. But it probably won't happen anytime soon, so you got to go back to option one. The forced control of reproduction, or the allowed death and or extermination of people. Now, I don't want to sound full hat on you. I don't want to. And I'm not saying that there's a big plan to go out there and exterminate a couple hundred million people. I don't believe that. But if you got to a point where you had to control the population, the only two ways to control a population are to reduce reproduction or kill members of the population at a higher rate than reproduction. That's it. And if you know another way, tell me what it is. And I'll take my foil beanie off. You know, it's not a full hat. I guess it's a little tiny beanie. I'll take it off. But that's where that thinking leads us to. I'm not saying it's where we are. It's just where it leads us to. And, and the bigger answer, the one that would probably play out is people dying on their own. When we reach a point at which demand exceeds capacity for food globally, permanently, can no longer be fixed, you will get a voluntary reduction in reproduction because people will decide, I don't want to bring a child into a place where I can't feed them. But what will really happen is people will start starving to death. And illnesses like this swine flu that are being overreacted to won't be being overreacted to because when you have a weakened, impoverished, poor population that's not fed, that's not nourished, that has problems with sanitation, a simple thing like the flu does exactly what it's doing in Mexico. It kills people that would have otherwise survived. So sooner or later, if we don't curtail this food production problem, we are going to absolutely have a global population reduction and or stabilization at a certain number. And I don't know where this person got the 8 billion number. They might have pulled it out of their ass. They might have just felt more comfortable saying it because if you said 6 billion, people would go, wait a minute, we're already there. So they may have wanted to leave themselves some breathing room. I won't pretend another motivation. I'll just tell you that's kind of how I look at it. So what's my solution? My solution is, one, I do think that we absolutely reproduce at too high a level. I think the United States has fixed that problem on its own. We are actually at a growth rate of like 1.2 or 1.3%. And if you take out the influx of legal aliens of our nation, we're actually at a negative growth curve now, uh, which means we are reproducing at a slower rate than death. So our population would actually be in decline without the influx of immigrants and illegal immigrants, both is the way I should say that, because it is true. So that that is one thing I think that we can do. In my family, we've elected to have one child and one child only. But, you know, you do what you want. It's up to you. I'm not going to start telling us to regulate populations. But I think that, in general, as societies evolve and become more stable and modern, people look to that solution for themselves. It gives them more freedom. 
pray lets them do a, a much better job of raising their children. And we're not in the old days where children were like part of your wealth and they were like your property. And if you had like 15 sons, they could all go out and grow food for you on your land. And then that's what drove that, that mentality of high population in the past. So that's not there anymore. So that's one solution. But I think the biggest solution is people growing their own food. Small, intensively managed plots of land. When you do that, you make the soil better every year, not worse. My garden soil is better this year than it was last year, and the next year it will be better than it was the year before. It is the exact opposite of large-scale agriculture. It will make people more in touch with what goes into food and how valuable it is and less wasteful. It will take pressure off the massive agricultural industries in the world. It will give people independence and self-sufficiency. It will breed better localized economies that exist on barter and or the you know monetary exchange at a local level. It, it can't do anything but make that happen. I'm seeing it just in how much more money people are spending locally right now with local garden centers and things like that. That business is booming because people are turning to it on their own. I think that's a bigger solution than trying to stabilize the global population. The other side of that is if you have to grow your own food, at least some portion of it, you're going to control your own population because you can only grow so much. And people will do that equation for themselves. But this is a dark, sinister, long-term thing that we're looking at here if the people of the world don't get a handle on it. So my solution to you is that what you should be doing is what we've always said you should be doing, developing greater independence, looking for an eventual way to not be surrounded by half a million or more people. I really think the people that live in the centers of these big cities are at serious risk over the next 10 to 20 years from a variety of threats, not just this one. To have the ability to produce your own food, uh, to be able to, to make sure that you're a steward to your own land. I think that's part of the solution for you personally. I also think one of the things you have to do is even when you listen to a show like today and you're thinking, holy shit, we're in trouble, don't overreact, don't panic. The time between this thing completely blowing up and going into a total meltdown and now is probably a fairly long period of time. We may see major spikes in the price of food, though, in the next five years. In fact, I expect it. So you'll see inklings of it, but you won't see it turn into the complete disaster, at least not in the developed world, for quite a while. That gives you time to work, develop, and plan, and be part of the solution rather than somebody that deals with the problem. I guess my biggest advice for you, though, today is really about the flu and the way you're seeing people react to it. I want you to watch in the coming weeks as you continue to see the over-exasperated news coverage of this thing, and I'm becoming more and more convinced that this is a relatively mild as far as its effect strain of flu, and unless it mutates, which is always possible, but I don't see it happening this summer. And again, you can't make a decision on that. If you feel you need to do something, you go do it. You make your own choices. But watch the way people react, and watch the way the news reports the information, and watch the things that the sheep do. The average person that has no clue, watch how they act. Watch them run to Rite Aid to buy a box of surgical masks. And if you happen to see one, ask them, now, what are you going to do with those? They probably have no idea. It just seems like what you should do. So they go do it. They have no plan. Ask them, what would you do if you were told to stay in your home for 60 days? And watch their face go blank, and they hold up their little box of masks as though that's going to save their life. We need to learn from this. 
I think that, again, I do think it is being overblown right now. And I, this is one of those times where sometimes I'll say I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm right this time. I really do. I really hope that I've, I've got this one pegged. It just feels that way for now. But stay vigilant, stay alert, but learn from the situation, even if nothing really comes from it, because you're seeing the way society acts in a panic right now, and it's a tiny panic. And God forbid a couple dozen people die of this thing, because they'll report every single one of them. Even though thousands and thousands of people die every year of the flu, every single one of these is going to be major media coverage. The death toll is now up to whatever. That type of thing. Watch the way the people around you react. And if they start to react a little bit too hard, you may want to start looking at EVAC uh, just from the way people react. Even if you don't think the, uh, the disease itself is a threat, keep an eye on things and learn your lessons as you watch the people around you. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Another day, another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream and you can holler It really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent